Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Have identity politics been hijacked by the elites? I'm Sean Ailing, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. That phrase, identity politics, has become one of those blunt epithets people use to dismiss forms of politics they don't like. You hear a lot of talk about identity politics. The division of America. Identity politics, flat-out racism and bigotry, but to the mob, the media, there's Identity only one politics gets a bad rap. Do you not agree that the real threat from identity politics in the United States to Western You might ask, what's so bad about identity politics? You wouldn't care about identity politics if it was your identity. And the general complaint, if we're being charitable, is that identity politics is toxic because it's narrow and exclusionary. Whether it's being practiced by Black Americans or trans people or white supremacists. So the idea is that if someone's doing identity politics, they're not mobilizing around some particular group interest, like class, for example. They're mobilizing around some fixed aspect of, well, their identity. And that's just bad politics in a diverse society that requires broad coalitions that cut across group differences. People on the other side of this will often say that this is really just an attack on race and gender politics, or that everyone has identities and politics is simply about mobilizing around those identities. In other words, identity politics is just politics. A new book by Olafemi Taiwo, a terrific philosopher at Georgetown University, tries to upend this debate and push it, I think, in a more productive direction. The book is called Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else. It's partially a genealogy of the phrase identity politics, but it's fundamentally about how virtually all political movements are co-opted by elites and stripped of their substance in the process. What Taiwo is really talking about is how powerful actors use something like identity politics as a mask for corporatism. A good example of this is a recent ad by McDonald's that spotlights a black female designer to, let me check my notes here, 
Yeah, that's right. Champion the company's commitment to environmental sustainability. Niani Phillips is an environmental activist with a serious commitment to sustainability. Through her website, Niani demonstrates that better quality clothing can be made from recycled products with less textile waste. See how McDonald's is showcasing Niani's mission to help save the planet. And of course, that's absurd since beef production is a massive contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. And all McDonald's really wants to do is sell cheap food. Anyway, you get the point. There's obviously a lot to chew on here. So I invited Taiwo onto the show to talk about what motivated his book, the kinds of identity politics he thinks are useful, and if he's optimistic about where we're headed. Olafemi Taiwo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I've actually wanted to talk to you for a while. And then I saw this book of yours and I knew immediately, all right, that's the hook. And I'll tell you why. I've always considered myself on the political left. I still do. But a lot of what passes as leftist politics today, at least in this country, bothers me because so much of it seems so unlikely to disrupt the power structure. It's the kind of lefty politics that I'm sure corporate America is very happy to see. We'll get into why that is. I think you and I converge on that point. But I just wanted to put my cards on the table right at the top and just kind of see if that's where you are as well, or if you're coming from a slightly different place or a very different place. Yeah, I mean, there are a few things that are more contested than the idea of what the left really is Mm -hmm. in this country or many other countries. So it's a little hard to say, but I think the outlines of what you're saying resonate with me. I consider myself on the left. I have been frustrated with the left in various ways. And I think that's an almost universal, at least ubiquitous condition. There's a lot of dissatisfaction with the state of the left, a lot of which is just because the left doesn't have power, but a lot of which are substantive disagreements. But people are dissatisfied with the left for very different incompatible reasons. And so part of what I was hoping to work through in the book was how much of the disagreements are really substantive, strong disagreements about what the world is like or what political struggle should involve and how much of it is just we're framing things in different ways. Yeah. Maybe the best way to ask you is just what you think of as the motivating criticism of the book. I mean, it's pretty clear. You think something has gone wrong with identity politics or the way we talk about identity politics, but it's not necessarily the thing a lot of people who are spending a lot of energy critiquing identity politics think has gone wrong with identity politics. So what exactly uh, is your beef here? So identity politics has come under a lot of criticism, a lot of it coming from the political right, who just aren't interested in the underlying issues of anti-racism or opposing the patriarchy or whatever it might be. But also, there's been a lot of dissatisfaction on the left. People think, well, identity politics is just a way for people of marginalized identities to cynically get out of certain kinds of criticism. A lot of people think maybe something even more cynical. Identity politics is just, at bottom, a grift. And there's either the kind of 
true grifters who consciously know that they're grifting, or there's the kind of useful idiots who are helping them grift. And I don't know, I'm not really on those teams. Like, yeah, there's, of course, bad behavior associated with any kind of politics because there's 7 billion of us and some of us are assholes. That's just the world, right? But when I think about what goes wrong with identity politics, it's just entirely of a piece with the broader trajectories of politics, which is a redistribution of resources and power upwards. And so the political distortions to the long history of anti-racist struggle are just entirely kind of traveling in the same sort of direction as the literal dollars, as regulatory capture, you know, all these kind of wonkier things that we usually set aside in their own separate little bubbles. At the end of the day, it's all the same thing, which is our social system is kind of wrapping it itself tighter and tighter around the top end of the various distributions of power and resources. It's fascinating. I guess I never even asked the question or thought about the origins of the phrase identity politics, which I bumped into in your book for the first time. Is that right that it was it was used for the first time or coined for the first time in 1977 by a regional black feminist organization and they had a very different <laughs> intention behind the concept? Yeah, that's right. The Combi River Collective was a group of queer black feminist socialists and they came up with the idea of identity politics and as they explained it, Kyung Yamada Taylor actually went and interviewed them and made it into a book, partially because the idea of identity politics has been so differently understood recently. But as they explained it, what it was about was having a responsibility to develop your own political analysis from your own place in the social system as queer Black women, social systems combine and interlock to affect you in a particular way in the same way that those systems would combine to affect you in different ways if you had a different set of identity markers. And the idea about identity politics was that's a place to start. That's a place where you can start thinking about what your political priorities are going to be. And it's not a substitute for working with other people or collaborating. It's not a substitute for coalitional politics. If anything, it can be an impetus for political politics because then you can more readily identify where your issues and other people's issues overlap and why. So all of those kinds of ideas were very strongly tied into identity politics as it was kind of originally understood by the collective. Then let's kind of talk about how things went awry. And I want to try to paint as clear a picture as I can of the story you're telling in this book about elite capture. And the metaphor that comes up a lot in your book is this metaphor of rooms. So the problem for you is that a lot of our politics has this pretense of being radical or subversive when in fact we're mostly just stuck in these rooms built by the very forces we're contesting. So one of the ways that I try to understand how identity politics might work differently in different places is with the idea of rooms. And 
in a way, it's kind of metaphorical. We could think, well, rooms are kind of like zones of interaction or they're particular parts of social networks. You know, I do theory for a living. We can be fancy about it. But actually, when I was coming up with this, I just meant literally like rooms. Like you go into a building and some people go into one part of it and other people go into another part of it. And those facts are non-random. Those facts are explained by if we're thinking about the university, for instance, which is the place where I work. The things that explain who goes into which rooms are things like rank. And all that I'm getting at by trying to talk about rooms in the literal or hypothetical case is that everybody doesn't interact with everybody. You interact with certain people. So what does it mean to endorse a politics of defer to this kind of person with this identity, defer to indigenous people, defer to black people, defer to people of color in general, defer to women, etc. given the specific people from all those categories that you're going to meet. If you're at Harvard, you're going to meet specific people from those categories. If you're in the White House and in the Situation Room, let's say, you're going to meet specific people from those kinds of categories. And those people might not be representative of the whole group. Yeah. I don't think there's anybody out there who would deny that what I said was true just now. But the question is, are we keeping that true and I think, I hope, obvious fact in mind when we talk in generalities about what identity politics is and what it should look like. It's not always clear to me that we are. Well, also just, I think, in the interest of not taking anything for granted, I'll ask what might sound like a simple question. Who exactly you're talking about when you're talking about the elites? Are we talking about rich people? Are we talking about high-status people, hyper-educated people, all the above what? Yeah, I think that's an important question. And I actually don't think the answer is obvious. And part of what I'm getting at with rooms is that the answer isn't obvious. The way I use the term elite in the book, the way that I think about it is taking cues from people like Joe Freeman, who's a political scientist who thought about the idea of the elite in the women's liberation movement. And also the kind of economists who study the elite, but it's local and relative is basically what I'm getting at with the term elite. There are few people in this world who are just elite without qualification, who would be elite in pretty much any room that they walked into. You know, Maybe Jeff Bezos is just an elite and we don't need to keep track of who we're comparing him to to call him an elite. There are probably a few of those people But I think, in general, elite is a comparison. And so you do need to think about who you're comparing it to. So when E. Franklin Frazier, the Black sociologist who I learned a lot from in writing this, um, when he's talking about the Black elite, he's comparing the people who are the most well-advantaged Black people against other Black people. And the reason why it's important that that's relative is that the black elite 
wasn't a powerful elite in any other sense, right? He calls them a lumpen bourgeoisie. If you compare them to the other titans of capital of different races, they're not economically powerful or influential. But nevertheless, the fact that they're more economically powerful and influential than Black working class people has a lot to do with how it is that politics goes for African Americans in that time period that he was writing. And so that's the kind of relative thing that I'm trying to say. So if you're in Harvard, if you're in the White House, if you're in the newsroom, you may well be dealing with people who aren't as advantaged as the other people in the room, who aren't as advantaged as the most advantaged people in the world, but who are nevertheless at the top of the distributions are the, you know, among the richest people from their marginalized categories. When people are in the room with me, I'm still an assistant professor. There are people who outrank me in the academy. But speaking globally, I am astronomically privileged in general, and especially, you know, among Black folks. I'm a Black one percenter. And losing track of that and explaining how that room does go and should go would be a mistake. We're going to take a quick break, but when we're back, Odafemi Taiwo is clear. Elite capture is not some kind of conspiracy. It's actually more boring than that. And that's why it's so much harder to tackle. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Great area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W.com slash box for 15% off. Burrow.com slash box. You know, something you, I think you said explicitly in the book, is that elite capture is not a conspiracy. What do you mean by that? Because I, I suppose there is a, a superficial reading of the argument you're making that can get very conspiracist very easily, where it's uh, yeah, the select class of elites trapping us in these stultifying rooms. But the truth 
of the dynamic you're describing seems quite a bit more banal than that. And for that reason, actually much harder to deal with. Yeah. So the basic thing that I think is that elite capture is a system behavior. Elite capture is a thing that our society does. And it can involve and often does involve people being cynical or people being negligent or people being selfish, you know, moral successes and failures. But it is primarily an aspect of what the system is doing. And it's not just, you know, a thing that a shadowy cabal of people plan out. What I'm hoping to keep in mind when talking about elite capture is that a lot of the people in the kinds of rooms I was just describing are just genuinely describing what life is like for them. If you are Black and at Harvard, you probably have more thoughts about Black life at Harvard than the average Black person. Not because you're trying to disenfranchise the Black masses who haven't been to Harvard, but because you are trying to understand your experience. It's a normal human thing to do. It would be weird if people didn't do it. And it would also be weird if I think we were to stigmatize people being more in touch with the aspects of life that they actually have a lived connection to than the aspects of life that they don't have a lived connection to. There's nothing conspiratorial about people who are marginalized in one sense of identity and advantaged in another sense of identity, looking at the world, describing the world, and reacting to the world as it appears to them. And so it's just natural that if the lion's share of the spots in newsrooms and in media organizations and in academia and in policy go to people who have some kinds of advantages, that the ways that injustice are understood, the ways that understandings of how injustice works circulate, are going to be affected by the experiences of the people who have the resources to spread narratives about the world. The conspiratorial thought, I think, is inaccurate, but it's not even clear that it is helpful. You would have to think a great number of organizations and institutions were in on distorting the world as it looks like for everybody. Yeah, and I think you're right to focus on systems and incentive structures as I like to do myself. You know, and there's a, I think a fairly, and tell me if I'm wrong, a fairly explicit critique of the way liberal democracy and capitalism work in this book. Or maybe it's not even a critique so much as an observation. But the liberalism that we have does seem almost engineered to produce elite capture of the, the kind you're talking about, right? I mean, it has this um, it has this pretense of neutrality, of a lay, level playing field. But it's not really neutral, and it's not really level, certainly not for long. And what happens as power concentrates is that the people who wield it become more influential and more invested in perpetuating the system. And the people determined to climb up the ladder get co-opted by it. I mean, is that too simplistic a story? Or is that more or less the story? No, I think that's more or less the story. I think you're right on both counts. It's both a criticism, but it's also just, a, I think, a plain description of 
how liberal democracy and capitalism function in concert with one another. You start with capitalism and you say, well, we're going to create a certain arguably core kind of elite. We're going to take the aspects of the world that pertain to production, which are the things that we need to do to literally survive, and we're going to put them under the private control of private interests. So how this works today is something of a complicated mixture of executives and shareholders. But regardless of what the exact story is about how corporations are governed, there isn't so much as a pretense that they're public institutions. The point of running them is shareholder value and maybe profit. And if other good stuff happens for people who aren't in the corporation, then that's maybe a bonus. But that's how capitalists understand themselves. That's how corporations understand themselves. That's how they communicate about themselves. We have duties to our shareholders and whatnot. So you start off by creating an elite that controls the kind of key actions of human life. And then you say, well, other than that, we're all equal and everybody gets to vote and et cetera, et cetera. You let that system run for a long time. And the people who have disproportionate control over how we meet our basic material needs end up having disproportionate control of other stuff. And we can talk about antitrust, we can talk about tax reform, and, and we should, but we should recognize that the basic outline of this situation was never compatible with anything that resembles equality. It couldn't be compatible with anything that resembles equality. It is from the first a system that rejects equality. And if we're interested in equality as a value, if we're interested in democracy as a system of equality, we might need something else. Yeah, yeah, that's part of what is sort of, I guess, depressing about the way you describe this dynamic, because it feels almost like a, a natural law of social life, where I think the way you put it in the book is to say, like, basically any system that has imbalances of power will produce elite capture. And that seems like pretty much every social system everywhere on a sufficiently long enough timeline. So it just feels inescapable. Or am I just being, um, I don't know, uh, too defeatist? I think that's pretty much right. The, the question isn't whether or not there's going to be elite capture, but I think the question is how much elite capture are you going to have and how negative will the consequences of elite capture in that society be? Another way to ask those questions that kind of points us towards more hopeful ways of thinking about it is how good is the society at constraining elite capture? There are two major families of things that I think would help us answer that question. One, how elite are they? How big are the inequalities? Do the people at the top of the income distribution have 100 times what the people at the bottom have? Do they have 10 times? Do they have 1,000 times? Elite capture in those three scenarios are probably, all other things being equal, going to look quite different from each other. Yeah. And then the second category of things are institutions and practices. The one bit of credit I will give liberal democracy tied with capitalism is that 
liberal democracy at its best could be thought of as a sort of constraint on elite capture, a way of organizing the rest of political life and social life to constrain elite capture. We're going to give these carpetbaggers here all of the control over needed aspects of production, but they all get one vote each, and they all get regulated by the society's government who everybody gets an equal vote in choosing. So supposing you actually count the votes, which is certainly in jeopardy in the United States, and also if you don't have things that are anti-egalitarian like the Electoral College, pending some other design decisions, that might actually do something rather than nothing to constrain the basic kind of inequalities that are built up in capitalism. An even better idea would be workers' unions. Those have historically been kinds of institutions of non-elites that do very well in checking the kind of excesses of economic elites. Well, let me try to make this as concrete as possible for a second and ask about an institution or an organization that that people will know about that exists right now in the real world. And that is something like Black Lives Matter. Do you see an organization like Black Lives Matter has having been captured by the elites? Do you see it as an elite-driven movement right from the start? Um, or neither? I mean, I've just people may or may not know, but there, it was just recently reported that some of the founders, uh, the people at the top of that organization were basically spending millions of dollars on like, personal real estate transactions and, and stuff like that. I mean, when you see a story like that, how does that kind of map on to the story you're telling in this book? Yeah. In an odd way, it's kind of both. It's happening in BLM, BLM Global Network, I should say. It's hard to defend. It's hard to understand. I don't even imagine how trying to do either would go. So it's disappointing, obviously, that there's mismanagement at the top level. But I think the question of what the highest up people are doing in BLM Global Network and what the movement is about, those seem to me like separable questions. And local chapters of BLM, which are fairly autonomous for years, have been criticizing the kind of decisions being made at the top of that network. There was a group letter signed on to by a number of the chapters which were calling for a kind of democratic reorganization of BLM as a network. And the kinds of insights that those organizers put into that letter are exactly the kinds of responses to elite capture that I think are strategic and make sense. Yeah, and in that chapter where you're talking about Franklin Fraser, you also write a good bit about Fanon. And there's some interesting passages. He's a a very well-known anti-colonial philosopher who was writing mostly in the 50s. And some of the concerns he had about the emerging elites or middle class and African nations getting captured and corrupted after they gained independence. And it was 
it's making me think of a, there's a book by an author named Jessa Crispin called Why I'm Not a Feminist that I read several years ago, a few years ago. I, I did an interview with her. And she seemed to be making a very similar argument about what happened with feminism, where it's sort of like the strain of feminism that won out was kind of like lean in, Sheryl Sandberg style, where like liberation basically stopped being dismantling patriarchy and basically just winning within the logic of it where you have like a seat at the oppressor's table is confused with emancipation when it was really just kind of perpetuating like the very machine that you were trying to reject in the first place and that seems like the same kind of logic of elite capture playing out in a different space but it's the same process right it's the exact same process and as far as i can tell the exact same reasons which are? Which are what we were talking about earlier with rooms, right? There are selection pressures. There are incentives. There are things that explain out of the huge variety, ideologically, economically, etc., which people, organizations, and ideas get rewarded and which people, organizations, and ideas get punished and persecuted. There were a lot of genuinely radical feminists who opposed not just patriarchy, but transphobia, imperialism, the whole nine. There were a lot of people who had ideas that were friendlier to the establishment, some out of cynical opportunism, but some simply because that was their considered opinion. And the question to ask for me isn't how could anyone have a considered opinion that we need anything other than a global anti-patriarchy revolution so much as if you had the burn-it-all-down feminist in front of you and you had the lean-in feminist in front of you and you operated a grant foundation and you didn't want your shit to get burned down, who would you fund? Right? That's 90% of it. You know, do that with the civil rights struggle, do that with queer liberation. It'll from top to bottom be, I think, fundamentally the same story. And this to me is why all of the sort of ideological criticism of identity politics is neither here nor there. All you need is to understand who's in charge now, and who has the resources to give out now, and assign them a minimum degree of intelligence. Not conspiracy, but simply simply understanding their own political and economic situation. And you can already explain why identity politics has gone the way that it's gone. And it's not different from anything else. Liberalism had a radical tinge. It's no accident that the versions of liberalism that are most commonly on offer now are the ones that are friendliest with capitalism. It really just feels like capitalism is undefeated, man. Like that's like, that feels like that's what this is, right? It's just, it's undefeated, (laughs) like over and over again. It has an unbelievable way of undercutting any potential threats to its own preservation. Absolutely. Again, I'm not trying to sound conspiracist, but it's like, it just, it's undefeated, man. (laughs) It's the same story. 
That's totally right. And <laughs> maybe the shorter way to say the whole book is that it's the problem with identity politics isn't that it's ideologically deficient. The problem is that the first world won the Cold War. <laughs> That's the problem. That's the thing that explains why it's being used in ways that you don't like. And you can't critique your way out of that situation. Okay, we're going to take one last short break. But after we're back, there's a lot of people out here trying to challenge the system. But according to Olofemi Taiwo, they're doing it wrong. Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Let's talk a little bit about the way forward. There are a lot of people who think they are challenging the system, who think they're helping, but in reality, they aren't. And a common manifestation of that is something you call deferential politics. You say that a prime example of this kind of politics is the call to listen to or center the most marginalized voices. And you say in the book pretty clearly that that kind of stuff just doesn't sit well with you. Why? That sort of thing never sat well with me because of the stuff we were talking about earlier with rooms. If you say you need to center the most marginalized and what explains your behavior is centering the most marginalized person in the room, it just isn't clear to me that what's going to be required to address that person's concerns will necessarily involve challenging the deep political structures that explain our world. There are some rooms where that might follow immediately, and there are some rooms where it wouldn't. If you're at Harvard, the thing that you need to do to fix Colin Powell's life just isn't a full dismantling of capitalism. It isn't, and we all know that. So in one sense, it just, I think, is wrong, or at least generalizes in a dangerous way about what it is that we need to do to address the problems of the social system we live in. But maybe more to the point, and more importantly, there's 
a better orientation to have. There's a better set of things to do. They're the kinds of things that workers are doing across the U.S. right now. It's the kind of things that Chris Smalls and Derek Palmer were up to. Maybe it's not about being the hall monitor of social interactions in this room. Maybe what we need to do instead is change the kinds of interactions that we're having in general, change the kinds of structures that exist beyond this room, and maybe enough efforts of that kind could actually change the way that the world works. So whether it's starting a union or whether it's just building the kind of cultures that would sustain people who do that work, we can take an orientation of constructive politics, as I call it, of building things that aren't already here rather than reacting to the things society's built for us, that history's built for us. And I think that's the ethos that is more promising. I mean, I have to ask what you make of what people often call woke capitalism or something like the diversity, equity, and inclusion industrial complex, or someone like a Robin D'Angelo who feels like the, the freaking apotheosis of like elite capture. So uh, I have to ask. I wrote a piece a while back with Enzo Rossi, who's a colleague of mine. Yeah, I like him a lot. Yeah, and... We, in that piece, said that woke racial capitalism, woke capitalism, it's a genuinely new historical development. In the past, a lot of these rich countries and corporations, they didn't apologize for having colonies. That took steady sort of progress as national independence movements were successful, as their kind of counterparts in the racial justice and anti-colonial justice movements in what we call the global north now were successful. That involved fighting openly against not just the actual structures of apartheid and segregation, but against the idea that those were structures worth having around at all, that those were structures that were compatible with these lofty ideals that we often pretend to have about equality and justice and freedom and so forth. And so from all of that perspective, I would go as far as to say that woke capitalism is actually, it's a victory. It is the ideological residue of many, many political victories that have been won over the past few centuries. It's annoying, it's dishonest, it's inadequate, it's all of those things. But fundamentally, it represents a kind of new political set point where a lot of the center-right to center-left feel like they have to hit different talking points than their counterparts 100 years would have had to. Yeah, I guess the question for me is, is it a materialist victory? And maybe I'll get in trouble for this, um, but the core function of fascism, for example, in my reading, is to mobilize lower and middle class resentments in ways that do not, will not alter the distribution of power in society. And what I see in largely 
symbolic iterations of progressive politics of the sort that like Robin DiAngelo represents is, albeit a far less dangerous tendency, but it's still the same kind of tendency to harness legitimate grievances in ways that won't do anything to address the material roots of those grievances. And it's not even about like right or wrong. I'm talking purely about strategy and trade-offs and like how to deploy a finite amount of energy. You know, so what's more important? Fighting over, say, historical interpretations or fighting for stronger labor unions, you know, like which of those is more likely to improve the lives of actual disadvantaged people. Every movement has to run this kind of decision calculus. You know, it has to think about the the cultural and political constraints or blowback and weigh that against the material goals and decide like what's the best way forward and how to spend the energy that they have or the, the money that they have or whatever. And does any part of that seem wrong or incomplete or just ridiculous to you? I mean, it's not ridiculous, but I think we need to expand what we mean by material. Mm, Yeah. What do you mean? I am of the opinion that there are a few things that would be more meaningful materially than building unions and empowering them and revitalizing the labor movement, just because it is a key aspect of how the world is organized. Yeah. But I think people sometimes overcorrect from that thought to sometimes taking it too far in terms of how other things that are often associated with identity politics are insufficiently material causes. People of all races in South Africa couldn't vote in elections until 1994. Who can be in power who can hold offices. These are material aspects of how the world is organized. They aren't necessarily the ones that we should have top of mind in deciding whether or not justice movements are succeeding or failing. I think it's just false in an ordinary way to shock up the development between the end of the Second World War and now to just rhetoric or just symbolism. There are like a hundred more countries because, <laughs> you know, because so many national independence movements won. Yeah. And whatever our dissatisfaction with them, that is a material difference in how the world operates that I think we should recognize as such. And we can keep that in mind while saying these aren't the full list of material changes that we wanted or want. Yeah, and I guess, look, I'm not a political operator type. I mean, what the hell do I know? But I guess there is an argument that maybe some of these you know, ideological or cultural victories are preconditions for concrete political victories down the road. I certainly think so, right? I mean, especially when we're talking about colonialism. I'm not of the opinion that the British Empire would have taken it upon itself to provide the material conditions for flourishing inequality in West Africa. If they were interested in doing that, they certainly had enough time to try it out, and they didn't. I suspect that's not an accident. You probably do need to have control of political institutions, even by corrupt elites, to begin thinking of winning other things. Yeah. That's not the whole ball game, obviously. Otherwise, you just trade one set of oppressors for another. But I do think there are intermediate steps between 
oppression and total victory over oppression. No question. And you write in the book that a constructive politics is one that engages directly in the task of redistributing social resources and power rather than pursuing intermediary goals, cash down and symbols, which is kind of what I was gesturing at a second ago. Right, right. What would a, a truly constructive politics look like? And, and do you think we're moving towards it or away from it? And again, when I use we, I, I am talking about the American political situation. I think we're definitely moving towards it. Again, what the Amazon workers are doing, what the Starbucks workers are doing, that's constructive politics. Yep. Not just because building a union is already a victory, but because building a union and having a bunch of sibling unions across the world is the conditions for tomorrow's bigger victory. And so they're building the kind of network of institutions that can lead to serious changes. And that's exactly what constructive politics would be about. Whether it's workers' unions or whether it's debtors' unions or tenants' unions, whether it's the kinds of mutual aid or childcare network that sustain the kind of people that would do those things. Like, you need to build stuff. It's not about hearing from the people who are marginalized and oppressed. It's about challenging the marginalization and oppression. And there's plenty of people up to that now. Yeah, there are. And one thing I, I found myself continually wondering when I was reading your book is you're kind of making the case that we are playing something like a rigged game, or at least a game in which power invariably finds a way to rig things to its advantage, which kept begging the question, how much agency do we have? You know, For me, the most dispiriting thing is this very, very old you know, divide and conquer strategy, his oldest time, damn near, where solidarity is perpetually undermined by diversionary squabbles between groups that are usually disempowered in, in, in different ways. And we always have the capacity to transcend that. It's actually not even that complicated, but it's incredibly hard to do for all of these reasons. So, I mean, how do you think about, about agency in terms of like transcending some of these dynamics you're, you're talking about? I think it's hard to do until it isn't. Hmm. And part of what the constructive view is about is doing the work of making it easy. Doing the hard work now of making it easy for people tomorrow. It's incredibly hard to get enough people to sign cards to form a union. It's incredibly hard to do all the organization to get a strike together, figure out demands, et cetera, et cetera. But once you've done all that, holding a picket sign is actually not that hard. Lots of people can hold a picket sign. Lots of people can do chants. If you don't know the chant, keep listening. We're going to keep saying it and you'll pick it up. Easy comes after hard. It rarely goes in the other direction in politics. That's just kind of how it goes. What's like the platonic ideal of like a, like a constructive political movement that comes to mind for you that demonstrates like what it actually looks like in the flesh? The example that I use in the book is my favorite example. It's the national independence struggle 
of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde. And it started off oppositional because it had to be. So what they were building was at first a workers' movement, and then when the Portuguese fascist government responded with violence, then it became a guerrilla campaign. But what they did was build, or at least try to build, a society that was self-determined, that had the structures to make its own decisions about how it was going to live. Very early, the African Party for the Independence of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde, the PAIGC, they started off comprehensive literacy programs, training programs in health services, and of course, combat. They developed a pilot school with the help of neighboring Guinea-Conakry and a number of allies abroad, Sweden, Bulgaria, Cuba. They started building people's tribunals and essentially just building a different society while fighting for the right to do so without getting bombed by NATO. And that, to me, is the constructive idea and practice. It's not that you don't have to fight. It's not that you don't have to struggle. It's not that there's no role for adversarial politics. If the powers that were were content to just let us live the way that we wanted, then we wouldn't have to do any of this. But it is compatible with political struggle and building the conditions for a certain kind of future. Well, America has two parties, <laughs> Democrats and Republicans, you know, Coke and Pepsi. That's what we got. Yep. It's not ideal. Uh, it's suboptimal, as the kids say. But that is what we got. Is the Democratic Party a viable vehicle for the political project you want to see in the world? And if it isn't, <laughs> where does that leave us? As it stands, no. Clearly, no. And the Democratic higher-ups themselves have made this clear. I always think of the fundraising speech when Joe Biden promised all of the fat cats in the room that nothing would fundamentally change if he was president. It's not even a mask-off moment because they don't <laughs> actually claim to want to fundamentally change things. But all of that is to say that whatever is going to be a vehicle for the kind of politics that could address these fundamental problems with the world and do so in a way that contends with the scale and scope of, say, the climate crisis. Whatever could do that would have to be built because it doesn't exist already in the U.S. Whether it's built within the Democratic Party or entirely outside of it or half and half or 80-20, I don't much care. But it, those are entirely tactical questions and not the stuff of moralizing or principle, as far as I'm concerned. But we have to build it because we don't have it already. And I think that's as good a point to start as any. That's, a, I think, a good place to end. This has been great fun, man. I love that you're a public-facing scholar and 
excited to keep following your career and, and see what comes next. The book is Elite Capture, How the Powerful Took Over Identity Politics and Everything Else. Olathemi Taiwo, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Fox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drozdowska. Patrick Boyd mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, let us know. Can we improve? We want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends and rate and review. And join us Thursday for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations.